It's the news this week on the Upper Memory Lock Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 55 of the Upper Memory Block Podcast. I'm your host, Joe, and I'm back, as always, to talk about some stuff from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So uh, we're going to do a little something uh, a little bit different this week. Uh, when I started putting the show together, I was intending to uh, to both discuss the uh, the recent news about Sierra's newly announced revival, as, as a lot of you are aware of, and, uh, and also do my regular kind of deep dive into a game, in this case, Indianapolis 500, the simulation. Well, as I do, I asked for emails, and uh, I got a whole whack of them back, uh, related, you know, some relating to Sierra, quite a few general ones, and some relating directly to, uh, to Indy 500. And by the time I put uh, all the emails into my, my document here that, uh, that I refer to while I'm doing the show... I, uh, I basically already had about three quarters of a show worth of content just from uh, just from your feedback. So instead of uh, of cutting out people's emails, which uh, it's it's very very much against my policy to do, because I think I've said it before. If you guys take the time to uh, to email me, I uh, I can only take the time to uh, to read your email out and talk about it and uh, and do all of that. So uh, I decided, as I've done a couple times in the past, to split things in two. So this week, we're going to discuss Sierra, the Sierra news, Sierra history, all kinds of stuff about Sierra. And, uh, you know, we'll go into, like I said, history about the inception and the demise of the company. Uh, we'll look at what details have surfaced regarding uh, recent news. And, of course, I'll read some of your thoughts regarding things in general. So um, a little bit of a different show. And uh, next week, I will uh, I'll do a regular show on uh, on Indianapolis 500. So uh, maybe for this slightly different kind of show, I can finally pull out a, a show kind of type name, if you will, that uh, somebody in the Facebook group suggested a while back, and we can call this sort of a UMB cast extended memory episode where uh, we break from the regular format. I think maybe the primordial version of of these different kinds of shows might be the special I did on emulation way back. I think that's episode four or something like that, uh, back in the early days of the show. So before we get to the big news though, uh, we've got some emails relating to both the previous show on pirates and, you know, some other things in general. So let's visit those. So first, we've got a message from Father Beast, and he writes, Okay, I suppose I do have something to comment on, or I had thought my limited, I had thought my limited experience made it so that I didn't have anything to say. I think he's talking about uh, pirates. He writes, uh, First off, you talked about the PC booter possibly being some holdover from the Commodore 64 roots of the game. Well, as a Commodore 64 owner, yes, I still have one sitting around somewhere, I know a little bit about that. The Commodore 64 didn't boot from disk. The operating system, CBM-DOS, was in ROM, so it just started from memory, kind of like most consoles of the day. As for PC booters themselves, I thought they were sort of a holdover from the days when a lot of computers didn't have hard drives, and this was a quick way to get your game running without a lot of fuss. 
This style of software went out of style with the coming of hard drives. Uh, one of your commenters mentioned Seven Cities of Gold. I remember playing that and having a lot of fun on the Commodore 64, though my memories of it show it uh, kind of like colonization light. Still, it's up on GOG.com now, and I intend to play it again. Finally, about the game itself, uh, I have a couple of versions of Pirates sitting around here and, uh, and have tried to play, but haven't been very successful. Maybe I didn't read the manual well enough, but uh, each time I've tried to play either Pirates or Pirates Gold, I end up losing the initial sword fight. I did play a bit of the remake, having checked it out from my library. That was back when my library used to do lone PC games. Uh, with the coming of one-use install codes, they got rid of all of them. I did have some fun with that one, especially when I discovered uh, that with a big enough group of pirates, you could take over a town. I was going to try and see if I could make every town in the Caribbean into an English town, but my three-week checkout was up. I never could dance to save my life in that game, though. Love the podcast. Looking forward to more. Father beast well thank you father beast and uh yeah like i think like i said in that last pirates show i never really had a ton of um of experience with uh with pc loaders i definitely remember uh on my old apple II. i guess my dad got an apple II when i was quite young and uh i do remember quite a few of of those games where if you just put the uh that one i think needed a disc to uh to boot an os or or something like that it wouldn't really do anything if you just loaded it up without a without a disc in the drive but uh, very, very young, so I might be wrong about that. But yeah, I remember quite a few of those where you put the disc into the drive, booted up the machine, and it started the game. And um, I had a few, I remember uh, I was over at one of my friend's houses, and he basically got, I guess his dad went to one of those computer stores and uh, got basically a huge shopping bag filled with uh, discs of varying things. And I remember a few of those, we'd pop the five and a quarter disc into the machine, and uh, you know we'd DIR it, and look for stuff but some of them always said you know like game name and in brackets boot and if you put those in you couldn't actually read them so we realized quickly that those were uh those were booters and we had to restart the machine if we actually uh if we actually wanted to use them so that's kind of my experience and uh you know i guess some of my observations i don't i I stand by them i do think it was a form of copy protection it was definitely a holdover and uh yeah, maybe the Commodore 64 roots, not not quite so much, though I, I do remember my few interactions with the Commodore 64 having to reboot the machine to uh, to play a few games. But uh, anyways, like I said, not necessarily my area of expertise. So thanks for that uh, additional little bit of insight. And uh, as a joke, I did actually install the, uh, the iOS version of Pirates on my, uh, trying to think, yes, it was on my uh, iPhone 5. And, uh, you know, I played a little bit and yeah, the dancing, maybe it's cause it was on the iPhone and the screen isn't very big, but that dancing is hard. So, uh, you know, I, I commiserate with you father beast that, uh, it is difficult to woo the ladies in that game because, uh, dancing is quite difficult. Next, we have an email from Elima and she writes, Hey Joe, I'm so sorry. I won't have anything to contribute regarding Indianapolis 500 as I've never been a big fan of racing games. Well, except for wacky wheels, which Apogee software released in 1994 Except ex- expect a big email from me uh, when or if you ever cover that one. Well, don't worry, Alima, I will be uh, I will be covering that one. That's kind of number two on my list for uh, for racing games to cover. Anyways, she continues to write. Listening to your last episode on Sid Meier's Pirates was great fun. See, I even used the exclamation mark. Yes, yeah, sorry, it was Sid Meier's Pirates. Uh, I'd never played it myself, but had heard lots of good things about it. However, I had no idea it was that intricate. The amount of research that went into the game's making is incredible. Looks like Steam's, the Steam Store hasn't made the game available in my region, though, so I'll have to go with GOG this time around. 
Anyhow, thanks for the podcast and all the hard work you put into it. I enjoy each and every episode, Emily slash Elima. Well, thank you, Elima. And um, yeah, I don't think there's any... I'm not, did I say it? I definitely said it in the last episode. I think the newer version of Pirates is available on Steve, though I guess you're you're not in the uh, in the North American region, so it is quite possible it's not available there. But hey, GOG is DRM free, so um, it's too bad because I really should inv- I should always check GOG first, you know, because it's DRM free, and once I buy the game, it's mine, and I can do whatever. But frankly, I just really like Steam's. Uh, architecture, infrastructure, uh, environment kind of a thing. Yes, the games are all DRM'd, but it's one place where, you know, I've got a ton of games and if they're not in there, like frankly, games I get from GOG, a lot of the time I forget that I have them or I forget that, you know, I had them way back when because they don't show up on my Steam list. So if I want to go play a game and I, you know, say I'm, I'm not playing anything at the moment and, uh, you know, I'm trying to go figure out, oh, you know, I should go play something. I go to Steam because that's where like my my pile, quote unquote, of unplayed games are. And I have a pile of unplayed games in GOG, but it's just not the same. So, eh, it's unfortunate that uh, that Steam's always the first place I look. I look in a DRM'd place before a DRM free place, but that's just the way it is. And we have another email from Patrick and Patrick writes, hey, Joe. I discovered your UMB podcast not too long ago, and I'm working my way through the episodes. I'm about halfway there and wanted to let you know just how awesome your podcast is. Every episode I listen to makes me want to go replay that game, and I think you have really nailed the format, overview, tech focus, Steph story, etc. My story, like many others who have emailed you, I'm sure, starts in the late 80s. In 1988, at the age of 12, my family moved to Calgary. Uh, I I quickly found computer games as a way to ease the transition to a new school, connect with new friends, and so on. My introduction to DOS gaming came in the form of Space Quest 1 and 2. I quickly developed an addiction to Sierra games, and uh, that would lead me to all other genres of gaming. The Ultima series, Goldbox AD&D RPGs, and LucasArts games all became a big part of my early mid-teens. I have tons of really great memories staying up late solving puzzles and exploring worlds on the 286 12MHz PC I worked hard to buy for myself at age 13. Fast forward 25 years... And uh, I have spent the past few years rediscovering this era of gaming. Again, like many others, I'm sure, my original physical game collection got lost slash pawned slash given away over the years. Uh, As painful as this is to accept, it has been lots of fun to try and rebuild the physical big box game collection through various means. They truly do not make games like they used to. Role-playing games uh, is, of course, the heart and soul of nostalgia, thanks GOG.com, or sorry, replaying the games is, of course, the heart and soul of nostalgia, thanks GOG.com, but the physical media is really something I miss. I have attached a picture of my rebuilt big box game shelves as I thought you might get a kick out of it. As you can see, I'm pretty much out of space to keep the growing collection. All that to say, keep up the great work with the podcast. If you ever get around to doing another Sierra game, I have to request the Colonel's Bequest. This was a hidden gem in the Sierra catalog that was unique in a lot of ways. I really enjoyed the writing and it had a lot of personality. Thanks, Patrick. Well, thank you, Patrick. And uh, and to be perfectly honest, uh, I, I guess a couple of my uh, my DOS gaming counterparts, uh, DOS Nostalgic on Twitter, and uh, I think maybe Trolls, the Space Quest historian, who you may be hearing from later in this episode, uh, were, were discussing, or it was a couple of other guys, including them, were discussing the Colonel's Bequest. And I had actually put it, I think, on, uh, on my schedule for this week. And then uh, I switched it out. But uh, it's definitely on my short list because it's a Sierra game that I've never played. And uh, frankly, there aren't too many of those. So I was uh, interested to see what it was all about. So thanks for that story. And that's cool. And uh, I did look at the look at your picture. And 
you actually do have the games quite very well uh, organized. Like you have all the big, big Sierra boxes all on one shelf and you can actually tell how big those big Sierra boxes were, you know, compared to more standard size game boxes. So really cool. You know, I, I wish I had the space for, for a physical game collection because I do love, you know, the box and all the stuff in the box and that kind of thing uh, quite a bit. But uh, unfortunately, yeah, not, not so much space. And uh, I'm glad that uh, there are some people who are still maintaining those game boxes. And finally, we have one email from, uh, it's signed as Rosella, which may or may not be the person's real name because it would be coincidental if it is, but Rosella writes, hi, I stumbled upon your King's Quest review and loved it. So way back to episode 24. Uh, Thus downloaded many more pods of yours to hear on the road. I am a team member of the remake of KQ4, The Pearls of Rosella. Uh, I want to ask for a podcast about the remakes of the King's Quest series. I'm talking about the fan remakes and not Sierra's own remakes, which are just the same games, just with better graphics and sound. Uh, KQ1, KQ2, and KQ3 were made by AGD Interactive. KQ3 was also remade by Infamous Adventures. KQ4 has three remake teams, and I'm on one of them. Uh, well, one team, Magic Mirror Games, has retired, and Westwood Studios' site is down for some reason. Unlike Sierra's own remakes, the fan remakes are not pure remakes, so they change many aspects of the game, like changing uh, the early King's Quest to be more than a treasure hunt uh, type game to stories with better plot, connecting the dots, better cutscenes, playable scenes, and cutting out some of those bad dead ends. Uh, I will be happy to hear about the new Sierra.com comeback slash reboot and uh, about what happened to the KQ reboot you said was due in 2013 by Telltale Games. Our own remake is still in progress, but a playable part is available for downloading at... Uh, he puts a link here or she puts a link here called, uh, HTTP colon slash slash unicorn org. And then there's a whole whack of things that I will put in the show notes. And, uh, he also puts a link to, uh, a hint book, which is Sierra style that can be found in their forums. Anyway, love your podcast. Keep it up. Well, thank you, Rosella. And, um, yeah, you know, I talk about, sometimes I talk about fan remakes and, Sometimes I don't, and I think it might actually not be a bad idea to do one of these here special episodes, since I'm, I'm doing one right now, that focuses more on fan remakes, maybe some in general, or maybe I could focus on Sierra fan remakes, because I definitely played through some of the uh, the Space Quest ones as well. So very, very cool. Very excited that uh, that you're working on uh, on KQ4. That was a good one. I enjoyed uh, King's Quest 4, and uh, I will be very interested to see how uh, how your remake is uh, is proceeding. Okay, so as you may have surmised by that uh, less than normal uh, bumper right there, uh, I'm devoting this entire show to Sierra. So to understand why the heck I'm doing that, uh, we need to talk about what recently happened in relation to this seemingly defunct former behemoth, beloved behemoth, in fact, of PC gaming. So way back on Thursday, April, sorry, April. August 7th, uh, 2014, if you're listening to this uh, way in the future. Hello, future people. So back on Thursday, August 7th, Sierra.com suddenly stopped redirecting to Activision's homepage as it had been doing for the past pretty reasonable amount of time uh, in, in the realm of some years. All of a sudden, the URL started resolving to a page hosting a single YouTube video showing a lone Arctic adventurer approaching an ice-covered mountain that looked oddly familiar to old school gamers like us. It soon resolved into a somewhat modernized Sierra logo 
and simply stated that news was forthcoming during the Gamescom conference, which would take place the following week. Of course, with this, the internet, including the UMBcast Twitter feed and Facebook group, exploded into speculation. What did this mean? Was Activision going to officially release the back catalog of Sierra titles? Were they going to work with companies like GOG to get more titles out? Were they going to make new games using old Sierra IPs? What did this mean for fan project and Sierra alumni projects like Spakes Venture and Quest for Infamy? Well, before we get to the details of what this teaser actually meant, let's take a quick look back at Sierra and see where it all started and unfortunately where it all ended, such as we know it. So, Sierra began back in 1979. Ken Williams, at the time a simple programmer, bought himself an Apple II. And when he wasn't writing code on it, his wife Roberta Williams was playing tons of early games, including text-based adventures like uh, Colossal Cave Adventure and other things like that. Now, text adventures aren't something I've covered much of, though the later ones, like Zork and things like that, uh, do, do certainly fall into the time frame I cover on the show. But by the heyday of, of DOS gaming as I know it, text adventures had sort, sort of fallen out of fashion, in f actually in large part thanks to the efforts of Ken and Roberta Williams, as we will uh, as we'll soon, see, soon see. So Roberta really glommed onto the narrative storytelling style of Colossal Cave Adventure. Uh, you know, she wanted more games like this. So she looked all over computer stores, such as they were at the time, game magazines, all kinds of things like that. She found a few others, but uh, and, and she played through them, but she felt like there weren't enough. And, and the ones she played, she didn't necessarily really love. So instead of giving up, she decided to pen a story for her own text adventure. She called it Mystery House, and it was loosely based on the novel And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie. So you, as the player, get locked inside a Victorian mansion and have no choice eventually but to explore both to find a treasure and to get out. Now, along the way, you can cross 70 rooms and run into seven other characters. Once Roberta wrote up her story, she convinced Ken to help her turn it into an adventure game. Of course, Roberta just didn't want to do what had been done before, so she drew simple line drawings of each room that would be displayed on the top half of the screen when you entered a new room. Uh, the text description of the room was still there, and the interface was still purely via text parser, but with those simple vector-based images, her text adventure turned into what they called a high-res adventure. So the, 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 the genre of high-res or graphical adventure gaming was born. Mystery House was sold for $24.99 in a Ziploc bag along with a photocopied instruction manual. Now that same year, Ken had started his own consulting business focused on making, you know, business software and tax software and stuff like that, and he had named it Online Systems. Well, they already had a company, it wasn't really doing a ton, uh, so they sold Mystery House under that name. Well, the game did great and sold an incredible, for the time, 10,000 copies. This led to more high-res adventures and more sales. In 1982, uh, this led to a renaming of the company to Sierra Online and the adoption of the now-familiar stylized mountain logo based on the famous Half Dome found in Yosemite National Park. By 1983, Sierra had grown from just Ken and Roberta hand-copying game discs in their house for sale to a new headquarters in Oakhurst, California and a staff of 130 people. However, a mistimed business decision 
soon led Sierra into hard times. The company had sought venture capital to invest in development of a cartridge-based game system, or at least of cartridge-based games, for systems such as the Atari 800, the TI-99, and the VIC-20. Sadly, before they could release anything, the bottom fell out of the cartridge market, the company was forced to lay off 100 staff, and Ken and Roberta had to take out a loan against their home to make the remaining payroll. So the company was in dire straits. However, as it sometimes does, an opportunity came along in the form of IBM. Now, the massive business machine manufacturer was trying to break into the home market with a machine called the PC Junior. It was sort of their answer to the Apple II. So they asked Sierra, which was known at the time as a purveyor of cutting-edge games, to come up with a game that would take advantage of the PC Junior's unique capabilities. Now, Roberta did so with uh, the game she continues to be known for to this day, King's Quest. For more info on this game, you can roll back to UMBcast episode 23. Sorry, it's 23. Earlier on, I mentioned 24, but it's definitely 23. Uh, in that episode, I fo really focus on the early days of Sierra. So the stuff I've talked about kind of glommed over here or gleaned over or whatever here, uh, talk about it there in much more detail. And I go into the development of uh, of this, of all the King's Quest games and whatever. But uh, you know, here we're doing just a bit more of an overview. So the original King's Quest was a truly next-gen title. It had colorful graphics. It had the ability to move your character around in uh, what they referred to as a 3D world. You look at it these days, and it looks decidedly 2D. But at the time, it was mind-blowing. King's Quest source code would form the basis for uh, Sierra's famous adventure game interpreter, or AGI, game engine. Well, despite all this incredible development on, uh, on King's Quest... The PC Junior honestly didn't do very well. Now, whether or not King's Quest was a great game, if no one owned the one system that it ran on, well, frankly, it couldn't be a hit. So again, it looked like despite doing this great job, Sierra was in trouble. Luckily, though, in 1984, the Tandy Corporation introduced a computer known as the Tandy 1000. So the Tandy 1000 was an MS-DOS computer, however... Much to Sierra's glee, it was also compatible with software written for the PC Junior. So King's Quest had its platform and proved to be the amazing game Roberta knew it was. The Tandy 1000 became the de facto gaming computer of, uh, of the mid-80s, and King's Quest became the de facto game that you ran on it. King's Quest was a mega hit. It got Sierra out of its financial trouble and cemented the company as a major player in the PC gaming industry. So in the ensuing six years we'd see the inception of all of our favorite Sierra franchises, Space Quest, Leisure Suit Larry, Police Quest, Quest for Glory, and more. Now, the company would go public in 1989 and enter a phase of acquisitions. So here we see the addition of great, you know, a great development houses like Dynamics, Bright Star Technologies, Cocktail Vision, Impressions Software, uh, Papyrus Design Group, which we're going to be talking about in the next episode when we chat about Indy 500, uh, Sublogic, and quite a few more. Of course, uh, bringing in all these other development houses drastically increased both the size and composition of the company, which allowed them to expand their library with more than just adventures. Sierra would become known for their simulations, their puzzle games, their card games, and much more via these subsidiaries. So 
So despite all this, this diversification and this awesomeness, when it came to their core quest games, King's Quest, Space Quest, blah, 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 King's Quest always led the way. It was always the first to take advantage of new technologies. It was always the first to take advantage of major engine updates, game design paradigms, uh, and all the while staying as true as possible to the, the, the tenants of Sierra Adventure Game Design. Things like exploring and trying things being the key. You know, looking and interacting with everything as much as possible, and of course, saving your game early and often because in a Sierra game, as we all well know, you're going to die, even if you're careful. Dying was as important a part of Sierra Adventures as collecting inventory items, as solving logic puzzles, as getting to the end, as getting the girl. You're going to do all those things, but you are going to die a hell of a lot of times along the way. Uh, they also led the way in online. Even when few people had modems, and those that did had, you know, 1,200, 2,400 baud modems, Sierra introduced the Sierra Network, which was similar to other online communities at the time, except that it was controlled by via a client-side graphical user interface, which separated the network into different lands. It was kind of like the Sierra theme park. And uh, in there, users could play different multiplayer games. In, uh, I think it was Larry Land, you could play uh, the, the Hoyle card games, uh, there was a kind of an online, I can't remember if it was actually like a, a graphical mud or not, but it was basically a multi-user dungeon where you could go and, and do kind of RPG, D and D style RPG adventures with multiple players. You could have a, a whole party with you that were being controlled by others. It was, it was actually really, really cool and, and really ahead of his time. So by 1995, Sierra had grown to over 700 employees and company revenue exceeded $80 million. Uh, though the company was never actually put up on the block for sale, Ken Williams, now CEO, uh, was approached by a company called CUC International in February of 1996. Now, they were looking to, uh, to expand into interactive entertainment. They offered Ken $1.5 billion in CUC stock for the entire company. Now, $1.5 billion was about 90% above what the company was trading on on the NASDAQ at the time. So they're basically saying, you know, if a Sierra share was $10, if you could go and buy a Sierra share for $10 that day, they wanted to buy that share for $19. So though he states that, you know, deep down in, in his soul, he didn't really want to do this in his role as CEO and his role uh, as chairman of Sierra's board, he had little choice but to accept the offer, basically, lest he be fired by the company's shareholders for making a stupid business decision. At the end of the day, you know, a, a public company is around to make money for its shareholders, and they're going to double the value of, of, their, of their investment. Sorry, that's a no-brainer. You're doing it. Of course, since the acquisition happened and Sierra no longer existed as an independent company, Ken had to immediately step down as, as CEO because he'd be CEO of nothing. Uh, he stayed on at, at the vice president level in, uh, in CUC, kind of helping with strategic direction and all that stuff they tell to uh, owners when their companies get acquired and say that everything's going to be the same and everything's going to be fine and blah, blah, blah. Well, Ken Williams lasted about a year in that position. Once he stepped down, Roberta left with him. And so begins what I will call the dark and slightly confusing times. Uh, the company would uh, would go on, of course, to be restructured, moved around, and sold until it was basically a, a shell of its former cutting-edge glory. So in 1996, CUC would restructure 
all of its game companies under a single umbrella named CUC Software. Now, CUC Software would include uh, six companies, include uh, Sierra included, and another biggie that uh, we're fond of these days, Blizzard Entertainment. Now, near the end of 1997, you see this stuff is happening. This isn't like they do this and then 10 years passes and something else happens. It's like 1996, this happens. 1997, CUC merges with HFS Incorporated. The new merged company is named Sendent Corporation. Now, under Sendent, Sierra was further split into four units. Sierra Attractions, which was for casual games like Hoyle and that kind of stuff, the card games. Uh, Sierra Home for home and productivity software like Print Artist and stuff like that. Uh, Sierra Sports for sport titles and Sierra Studios for general publishing. Now at this point, uh, while Sierra was still developing quite a few in-house titles, they were certainly leaning more toward the publishing arm of the game development process. Now it wasn't all bad. Uh, Through all of these mergers and all these acquisitions, Sierra would publish one uh, interesting and unique first-person shooter made by a relatively unknown developer named Valve. Uh, of course, I'm referring to Half-Life, a game that a uh, great many people, me included most of the time, forget was actually published by Sierra, you know, in light of all of Valve's recent success with Steam and all this other stuff and Steam boxes and blah, 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 and, you know, being the future of everything. You forget that at, one, at, at this time, Valve was this little development house making a first-person shooter starring some dude with a beard named Gordon Freeman, And, uh, you know, they had to get it published through a big guy, that big guy being Sierra. Despite this awesomeness, 1998 wasn't all roses. It would, in fact, be the year of one of the largest cases of accounting fraud in U.S. history. Now, without going into too much detail, because frankly, I don't find high finance incredibly interesting, uh, it appeared that in the years before the merger with HFS, CUC had been grossly misreporting their income to the tune of over $500 million. Uh, CUC's former management team was found guilty of accounting fraud, and the company was required to pay a fine of $2.85 billion as a class action kind of uh, rewards to their shareholders. Now, as a result of this, Sendent decided, I guess maybe to gather the funds... Uh, to sell off its interactive entertainment division. Uh, This division was sold to Paris-based Havas Interactive. So this was, again, Sierra, Blizzard, and four other companies, all sold off to Havas Interactive, which itself was soon also taken over by Vivendi. There's kind of all this horse trading going on in here. This is like crazy town. Basically, at the end of the day, all you need to know, Sierra started off independent. At this point, they belong to Vivendi. This leads us to February 22nd, 1999, or more infamously, Chainsaw Monday. That day, Sierra announced a major reorg of the company. This resulted in the the shuttering of entire development studios, the relocation of key projects along with their staffs to, you know, away from uh, the, uh, I can't remember what the name of the town is, uh, the Bellevue, California office where they had moved once they moved from... uh, the famous uh, red building in Oakhurst. So people moved out of there and, um, you know, the layoff ended up totaling about 250 employees. Major projects from well-established series and designers were stopped cold. Al Lowe was laid off and Leisure Suit Larry 8 was killed. Mark Crow was also let go and Space Quest 7 was silenced on March 1st. 
30 people were laid off from Dynamics. They thought they got away clean. Not the case. 30 people was a full 15% of Dynamics' much smaller workforce. So, well, Sierra would continue to release games. I kind of feel, and most people I would think, kind of feel that at this point, after Chainsaw Monday, the core group of people who made Sierra what it was, kind of back in its heyday, back in, in the 80s and early 90s, well, they were all gone. You know, layoffs and reorgs would continue until August 27th, 2004, when Sierra's Bellevue, California office closed its doors. And at that point, Sierra was simply a name that was owned by Vivendi. Now, they'd continue to release games under the Sierra banner until Vivendi merged with Activision, forming today's Activision Blizzard, which occurred in 2008. At that point, all of Sierra's IP was acquired by Activision and the Sierra and Sierra was closed down even as a name to publish under. Now, in the past few years, Activision has released precious few old Sierra IPs for use by small developers, hoping to recapture the magic of those old games. But that may have changed as of now. So now that we know where we've been, let's see where we're going to. At least such as we know it today. Uh, so August 7th, we were promised news at Gamescom. Well, it's been 10 years since Sierra's last physical office was closed, as we saw back in 2004. But it now seems that Activision is opening its vault and letting Sierra, the Sierra brand out to play again. So the updated Sierra site after Gamescom, that site that said, hey, we're going to announce something at Gamescom. Well, it got updated and uh, the site now reads... Developer-led and player-focused, Sierra brings fans highly curated titles that embody best-in-class efforts from indie developers. From providing development funding and deep first-party relations to marketing and retail distribution, Sierra caters to the individual needs of each indie studio. Sierra games will be primarily digitally distributed on platforms including Xbox Live, PlayStation Network, and Steam for PC. So that's the end of that quote. And uh, so it appears that the new Sierra will be Activision's, I guess, quote-unquote, I'm doing the, the air quotes with my fingers, uh, it'll be their indie brand, their quote-unquote indie brand, catering to smaller developers making more niche games. Uh, as an example of this, they teased two upcoming games. Now, the first one uh, is, is a new game in the Geometry Wars series. It will be developed by a company called Lucid Games, which is made up of staff from uh, Bizarre Creations, the company that originally created, uh, I guess, Geometry Wars Retro Evolved, the one that uh, everyone got on their uh, Xbox 360. Now, this is all well and good. Geometry Wars is great. It's a lot of fun. Dual stick shooters are awesome. But eh, Sierra, you know, they developed, I think they released one of those. But the second game announcement is the one that at least hit me harder, and I think the one that most of us probably care about. Uh, a new King's Quest game is due out in 2015. Now, this will not be an HDified version of a previous game, but a true sequel featuring King Graham recounting his adventures to his granddaughter named Gwendolyn. I'm wondering who's... Uh, is, it, is it Rosella's kid, or is it... Uh, oh, what's his name? The dude from... Yellow and green dude from King's Quest Six. Anyways, might be his kid too. We don't know whose daughter uh, Gwendolyn is. Uh, now, the fact that this is old King Graham recounting his adventures kind of tells us that we may be revisiting some old content, maybe updated, but uh, I guess we'll have to wait to find out. Uh, this game will be developed by the Odd Gentlemen, who are the guys that did the misadventures of PB Winterbottom. Now, I haven't played the misadventures of PB Winterbottom, but I do recall hearing very good things about it, 
And in fact, maybe I should give it a go to see who we're dealing with here. I, I understand it's, it's a pretty interesting, quirky game. So, with this announcement of, of this new King's Quest game, we can now make some sense of the abrupt cancellation of the Telltale Games version of King's Quest that I discussed back in that episode of the show, and I think one of the emailers earlier on uh, referred to. So, uh, obviously, if, uh, they, if Sierra was coming back, I imagine Activision pulled back as much licensing as, uh, as they could, and since this Telltale Games King's Quest was probably going to be their... Uh, one of their headliners, they probably, they, they killed it and uh, they wanted it to release under the uh, Sierra banner. So the odd gentlemen have said publicly that this won't be a retread. In addition to not being a retread of an old game, it also won't be a retread of the classic point and click adventure style either. Yes, it will be an adventure game but you won't only be using your mouse to control the action. Now, I guess we'll see what that means as time goes on. I know, uh, I, I don't know if they will be more like the Telltale stuff where, you know, it's kind of moving around and interacting with things via hotkey and then a couple of quick time events. Hopefully not. I don't really love quick time events, but I don't think most people do. But uh, time will tell. We shall see. Uh, it also appears that Ken and Roberta Williams are not directly involved in this new company, but uh, at least publicly, Ken Williams has stated that he is supportive of this announcement. You know, said they're proud of all the work they did back in those days, and having new stuff come out under those old banners kind of makes him quite happy. So, what do you guys think of all this? Well, as always, I got some great responses, some great emails from you guys on the news. So first, we've got a message from Gareth, and Gareth writes... Hi, Joe. Found your podcast through an ad on the Space Quest Historian podcast. So from there, you can see I have an interest in Sierra games. Uh, when I read about the Sierra.com teaser, I got far too excited for a 36-year-old sitting in an office. People wondered what the smile was. Though on my side, I kept thinking I was reading too much into a video teaser. Uh, for me, they were due to release sequels of every game of my childhood. A week passed and two games were announced. Though for me, I only saw one game. King's Quest, and I'm hoping it will spark more Sierra games to come. To pull it back to where my spark from Sierra came, uh, when I was a preteen and living in Manchester, UK, I had been passed a copy of Space Quest 3. No manuals, no box, no questions. Uh, I go through robot heads, and it took me a while to realize that, yes, I should step into a rubbish bin on a conveyor belt. Uh, it was then that the game would end. Short game, or maybe a hint, I should uh, really buy this game. I got it for Christmas soon after and loved the game. I remember my mom coming home from the local secondhand market holding a bright pink box saying she'd found a game from the company I liked, Sierra. I didn't know who this Larry character was and thankfully my mom didn't read too much more past the Sierra Mountain logo and never asked how the game was played. Let's just say living in the UK is the biggest challenge. Uh, let's just say living in the UK, the biggest challenge was uh, the US-based questions for over 18s. From there, I'd write to Sierra for hints and tips and remember being amazed the first time a big A4 envelope landed on my doorstep shipped from America. Hints and tips answered in what looked like a personal way. And then a free magazine, Sierra Insider, I think it was, followed by interaction. Uh, more games to buy, and I loved reading through the catalog for what I wanted for my following birthdays and Christmas. Every new game was a must, and I loved those big boxes every year arriving fresh and new. Now, the designs were great from the slipcover down to the comforting Sierra box inside the cover that held more and more discs every year. 
I remember getting the big box for Leisure Suit Larry Reloaded and sighing when uh, that didn't come in a similar shape big box. I guess I just built myself up for failure there. Right. That's a lot about where uh, I came to Sierra. Let's just say I'm excited. Hopefully, you'll get to speak more about Sierra in the coming podcast. I really hope so. Thanks for a great podcast. Uh, now I'm through the bl- the backlist. I now have to wait for each new podcast. Gareth. Well, thank you, Gareth. And yeah, you know, your your story is somewhat similar to mine. I mean, my first game wasn't Space Quest 3. But yeah, I do remember, uh, you know, getting my hands on the Larry games and, uh, you know, my parents not really uh, paying too much attention to uh, to what they were and and what it was about. It was one of those games where, you know, you'd kind of have to turn your head around and make sure no one was coming through the door when you were playing it at certain points in time, especially when you were, uh, you know, 10, 12, 13, 14 years old. But, um, but yeah, so I'll, I'll keep my, my particular opinions about this whole Sierra revival thing to the end. Cause that's what I do on this show. But, uh, but I'm glad that you're, I'm glad that you're excited. So next we have an email from David and David writes, Hello, Joe. It might be a little late for your show, but given that I was so ecstatic at winning that Space Quest 3 poster, and thank you once again for that, I guess it should come as no surprise that I'm quite interested in this story about a Sierra revival. I guess you could say I'm cautiously excited. On the one hand, I think most people have experienced some cherished childhood movie or series that has been resurrected years later and has been far from amused at the result. On the other it is possible every once in a while for these to be quite fun and respectful of the originals. I think enough time has passed. Uh, It was sad to see Sierra, a heavyweight computer game company, disappear and seemingly take an entire genre with it. Sure, LucasArts developed a few good titles over the years, and indie companies have kept the adventure game on life support, but it is always annoying to watch some YouTube video on the history of PC games or the best PC games of all time and hear nary a reference to Sierra or any of their titles. I'm pleased to see Activision, a company that produced some great titles too, to show an interest in resurrecting a brand and the series we all associate with it. The fact that they are putting series in the hands of indie developers is also encouraging, given these are the ones who have been scratching the adventure game itch since the larger companies decided there was no real profit in it. So why not give them a shot? Certainly, The Odd Gentleman looks like an interesting group. I've thought of purchasing games of theirs before, so I will probably check out their take on King's Quest. And now he kind of puts this in sarcastic blocks and says, I know this is crazy talk, but I'm sure we can find two guys to tackle a Space Quest revival end of sarcastic block. Uh, I'm sure other folks would be willing to tackle Quest for Glory, Cleese Quest, etc. too. David from Toronto. Well, thanks, David. And uh, I'm glad you enjoy your Space Quest 3 poster. I actually had, uh, I don't know if you guys, this this only happened on the Facebook group. I just decided to do a little, uh, a little giveaway a couple weeks back because I was printing up some posters for my basement. Uh, and uh, I ended up having an extra Space Quest 3 poster because they didn't print it quite the, uh, well, thought they didn't print it the right size. I decided instead of putting up uh, two Space Quest posters, I'd put up Space Quest 1, and then I have a uh, Kilrathi Saga from Wing Commander poster, uh, Grim Fandango, and uh, the Secret of Monkey Island box art. So I had this extra poster, gave it away on the Facebook group. Maybe next time I have something like that, I'll give it away only on Twitter. Uh, you know, just a little bit of fun. So uh, glad you enjoy that. And yeah, it's sad because I know Sierra's getting old enough now. So there are people, there are there are gamers, quote unquote, you know, such as if you want to call yourself a gamer, I don't like labeling, but there are gamers who make lists of the best games of all time. And there's no Sierra games on there because, well, they haven't been around for that long. And, um, you know, I think, like I said before, 
Half-Life is technically a Sierra game, but obviously at these days, people don't think of it that way. So yeah, I, I'm interested to see. And again, The Odd Gentleman, uh, something I, I definitely want to uh, want to look into. So finally, we have a voicemail. Now this is a little bit of a little bit of a, a voicemail, well, mostly a voicemail about Sierra, but also a bit of a an ad for uh, for Trolls, the Space Quest historian, and uh, Frederick Olson. They've started a new podcast uh, all about sort of about game design and things like that. And uh, you guys should should check it out. So here you go, take it away, Frederick and Trolls. Hello, sir. Well, how are you doing this fine evening, then? Oh, I'm doing very well, although my ankles hurt like a motherfucker. I, I heard you had something you wanted to discuss with me. Breaking news, Activision doesn't suck all of a sudden, and we've decided that they're sitting on a brand, which is in turn sitting on a hell of a lot of valuable intellectual property. We have these dudes, uh, the odd gentlemen who I've, uh, I haven't been aware of actually, uh, who are, who've been charged with uh, doing the uh, King's Quest reboot and they've been, they've, they've come out and saying, well, it's not actually going to be a point and click adventure game. We're just, we're just doing a King's Quest game. The original quote from a person who had seen the game went, it's pretty great. They aren't doing a point and click adventure game. They're just going in a different direction. Well, that's, that's cool. I'm, I, that, that's that's okay with me because it, I mean, if, if there's one thing that you know, uh, tablets and uh, and all this newfangled equipment is is good for, I would say that is uh, you know, point and click adventure games. But you know, having said that, they're not going to do a point and click adventure game. Uh, okay, fine. Actually, there there are a couple of things that, that, that worry me. But the first one of those is that uh, um, we're going to be doing this for the console market. That's that's the line that keeps getting repeated. Uh, we're looking at taking all these uh, old uh, intellectual properties. And uh, and getting in contact with the new and exciting indie developers, I think the quote the, the quote was yeah that, that's that's the one I was I was, was going to say they, they, the quote was edgy indie developers as opposed to all the unedgy developers we, we've got lying around and but we we have to remember that this era of, of old wasn't exactly averse to PR bullshit either. <laughs> Someone had to say that Girl in the Tower was a good song at one point. No more today. <laughs> no more today. The sun has gone away. Yeah, right. <laughs> See you, man. Backseat designers telling adventure game developers how to do their job so you don't have to. Visit us at backseatdesigners.potbean.com well, thank you, gentlemen. And yeah, you definitely brought up some uh, some good points there. I never know what edgy means. I also remember I used to be, I still am a pretty avid reader of, of WillWheaton.net. And uh, I also remember back in the day before he kind of became, you know, what he is today and kind of become very successful when he was still kind of looking for acting jobs here and there and stuff. And that's what they always told him. They said, you know, you're pretty, pretty you're pretty good, but we're going to with someone edgier. And we want some, we, we're looking for something edgy and no one actually knows what edgy means. So I guess like, like we've said over and over, I guess this is kind of a wait and see thing. We'll see what the odd gentlemen do. And, you know, maybe they will do something a bit more console focused. I don't personally think that's a horrible idea. I mean, really at the end of the day, most adventure games didn't have a super complex interface like you could scroll through verbs you know maybe LucasArts style they had more verbs and that might be too much but kind of the the standard sierra walk look talk taste smell you know you could rotate through those or have you know certain buttons 
be certain things. So, you know, that you could definitely take it the console direction. I guess we'll see. So thank you very much. Go check out their podcast. It's bright, bright, shiny, and, and new. And obviously, you know, trolls being trolls, it's a little, it could be a little sweary. So if you have a problem with that, it's something to take into account. I personally don't. So, hey, two smart guys that are into adventure gaming, talking about adventure games. What could go wrong? All right, so it's time for my opinion, I guess. My opinion on all this. I'm not going to say, does this game hold up today? Because this is all current awesome stuff. So, as usual with me, I don't know if I've kind of discussed the way I kind of take news and things. Uh, at first, I was very wary, let's say. Like many people, and I'm sure like a lot of you, Sierra holds a very, very important place in both my gaming history and honestly my development as a human adult being. Uh, some of my first and best gaming memories are of Space Quest, Police Quest, and King's Quest. These were followed by the Dynamics Flight Sims, by gay cool games like Earth Siege and Outpost that I haven't even ever talked about before. Uh, if it had a Sierra logo, I would find a way to play it. I basically knew that if I put a Sierra disc into my floppy drive, or if I put a Sierra CD into my CD-ROM drive, I would probably have a good time. Sure, looking back on some of the game mechanics, yeah, they were awful and frustrating and masochistic, but at the time, that never mattered to me. Hell, I'll even say with confidence that Sierra is what made me become a computer programmer, a software developer, a software engineer, an application architect, whatever the hell you want to call it. My dream was always to work at a place, at Sierra, or a place like Sierra. It seemed like a dream job, and as I've read more and more about the dev stories of all these games, it does appear that for a time, working at Sierra was incredible. Sure, it may have been stressful at times. I mean, in software development and game development in particular, timelines are deadly. Like, you're up all night, you're trying to get things in, you know, it's got a ship for Christmas, it's got a ship for whatever, Thanksgiving, you know. There may have been issues to overcome, but it was, at its core, I think, a group of passionate people doing what they love. Sure, there was probably one guy there that didn't like his job, but I think for the majority, the people that we see and that we interact with and that were put on the boxes of things, they were there because they wanted to be. So to say that I was concerned that Activision suddenly decided to bring Sierra out of the closet, if you will, that it was stashed in, is a little bit of an understatement. However, I've taken some time, I've done some more reading, and I've talked to quite a few of you, and honestly, I'm feeling better about the whole thing. And I'd even venture to say I'm cautiously optimistic at this point. And we've got a new King's Quest coming from an interesting developer who isn't simply focused on redoing what's been done before. Uh, we have the promise of more announcements soon. With that in mind, I am personally very excited, but I definitely want to wait and see what we're going to get. <laughs> so that's it for this special show. Thanks as always to everyone who contributed. Uh, I may do some more of these more company-focused episodes from time to time, especially if news like this comes out. I don't think we're going to see like the, the revival of LucasArts or something like that, but who knows? For some reason, maybe I'll find a way or a reason to do like a, a LucasArts 
company overview that isn't necessarily super focused on on particular games or anything like that. So I'm aiming to get the regularly scheduled Indy 500 show out next weekend. So there won't be the regular two to three week gap until episode 56, just because I promised you an Indy 500 show and uh, I want to give you an Indy 500 show. I just thought that this was really cool to talk about and I should probably slide it in first. Uh, I still also have a few emails from people having to do directly with Indianapolis 500, the simulation. Those will appear in that show. So if you didn't hear your email this time, don't worry, don't fret. I have them. They're in the doc for the next show and I will read them right there. So as always, if you've got an opinion about anything I've said today, and of course I don't, I just, I don't assume, and I don't think any of you should assume that I got all my facts hundred percent right in this whole in this whole uh, little history overview, there's probably some stuff I skimmed over that might have been more important than just having a mention or not talking about it at all. I might have got some dates a little off here and there. Not an expert. Put this all together out of uh, you know interviews and Wikipedia and fan sites. So you know sometimes you find information that may be accurate or inaccurate. But feel free to let me know, trolls. I know you're going to. <laughs> but. Uh, if you have any anything like that, any opinions, any corrections, any thoughts on on past games, on the Sierra stuff, on Indianapolis 500 for next week, you can always send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. As always, I want to thank Rick Moyer for his great audio work. The regular bumpers will be back next week, I promise. Uh, check out the show notes at umbcast.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash umbcast. I was in meetings when this whole Sierra thing went down and that got posted by somebody else. So everyone's keeping me abreast of things. Uh, follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. Me personally, twitter.com slash billybob476. You can find the Steam group at steamcommunity.com slash group slash umbcast and on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast where I put up videos of my game research sessions. I thought I wasn't going to have time to put up Indy 500. I played the game, but I, I didn't have a chance to stream it. So maybe I'll still have a chance to do that for next week. Uh, subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher Radio. Leave me some five-star reviews. I love them very much. So that is that. And we will see you next time for attempt number two at Indianapolis 500, the simulation here in the upper memory block. Phew! Sierra! You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastriani. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join the unity.